Dear Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb who was slain and who lives, who reigns for all eternity. Because of your resurrection, Lord, we can have hope. So we pray that you would instill in us a deeper hope by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may be filled with all joy and peace as we believe and abound with the power of your hope. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody's got a handout as you're um, coming in here. You need one. We've got some more up here. Get some in the back there. Uh, I want to start with this. In the course of, either in the book or the video, I forget where, maybe both, uh, N.T. Wright observes that when people are confronted with death, just in the world at large, they tend to say conservative things. That is, they stick to what they were told when they were young, right? Um, Whether or not they happen to believe in God. They will just kind of repeat stuff that they heard when, when they were young. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that people, even who aren't devout, will still say things that they seem not to believe or live the rest of the time when they are confronted with the fact of death? Does that make sense? They're Folks afraid. will just kind of revert to it. So why, why do you think that is? Go ahead. They're afraid. They're afraid? Okay. They like, don't know better. Don't know any better? Sure. Okay, God's written eternity in their hearts. And so that, there's still that, that inkling, you might say, of it. Mm-hmm. Good work. Okay, yeah, why else? Don't know what else to say. Don't know what else to say. I mean, really, like, people, uh, there's so many things that we encounter on a day-to-day life, and you're able to kind of fake it till you make it, as they say. <laughs> um, but when it comes to death, that can be a, a really daunting prospect. And for folks who haven't had a lot of experience dealing with death, it's like you're just groping for some words, some way to try and understand or make sense of it. And so you go back to something that maybe you heard in Sunday school once upon a time, even if you don't go anymore. Others of you, any other thoughts? Well, I think that we're going to see, Marion, you look like you want to say something. I just, I agree with what you said first, because I think people yeah, at the time of death, they realize God is the only way. That's, there's that old saying, right, that there's no atheists in right. foxholes, right? And I don't know if I, can, I can't empirically verify that, um, but it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And I will say that in my ministerial experience, that's often the case. Folks who might be hardened skeptics or atheists, but when, when they lose someone they love, uh, either that, I mean, it, it can just strengthen them in their unbelief, or it can crack the door a little bit to, wait a second, there's got to be something, something more than this. Because we have that sense in our bones that death is not the way that, that it's supposed to be. And it can't be the end. So um, today we're going to be talking about, as I say, the hope of the resurrection. Uh, in the video, we're going to get into some of the first century beliefs about what happened to people when they died. Um, please note that on your handout here, There's kind of an outline, um, just a skeleton of things that he's going to talk about in the video. So if you want to take some notes as we're um, watching watching the video, it's about 15 minutes long, and some of his teaching, and then we'll come back together after the video and uh, continue with uh, our our discussion. So with that, I will hand it over to the good bishop, Tom Wright. (laughs) Thanks, Chip. Oh, sorry. The captions actually worked pretty well last week, so I'm going to go with that again. They, they don't know about periods, but that's okay. <laughs> Who needs them? Okay. Yeah, come back. 
fascinating things about Eskom Church here is that it's much closer in date to the time of Jesus himself than it is to our day. It was built within 700 years of the time of Jesus, and we are now 1,400 more years out beyond that. But it isn't just that. We're surrounded here by old tombstones from several different periods, and a lot of them have got inscriptions which actually tell you what people believed about life after death and what hope there might be. So there's one inscription here which has a nice little poem which actually expresses the classic Christian hope. It says, Go home, dear friends, and leave us here, and let us lay till Christ appear. When Christ appears, we hope to have a joyful rising from the grave. Now that is the mainstream Christian hope. We're resting here at the moment. This isn't the end of the story. Jesus is going to return, and when he returns, there will be a resurrection. All these graves, like in all English churchyards, they're all facing east, so that it was assumed that Jesus would rise like the sun in the east, and then they would all stand up to greet him when he arrived. That is the classic Christian hope. But for many, for the last, ooh, 150 years or so, the hope has been transformed into something quite different. It's just about, for many people now, going to heaven when you die. No mention of resting and then something else. No mention of a bodily resurrection. Just an abandoning of this world and a flying off somewhere else. And the need in this very churchyard, there are some of the graves which tell it like that. So many people are confused about this, but it's really important we study it carefully. And that's what this session is going to be all about. So what exactly happened to Jesus three days after he was executed? Why did the early Christians use that strange word resurrection when they wanted to say what they thought had happened? And what can we say about our view of what they were thinking? To answer those quite interesting questions, I found it helpful to go back and track a bit through what people in the first century believed about what happened to people after they died. You can divide those views broadly into two, ancient pagan views and ancient Jewish views. The ancient pagans had a whole range of things they believed. After all, some of the Roman emperors believed that when they died, they were going to become gods and their uh, female family goddesses. But there were many other views as well. Some ancient pagans just believed that when you died, that was it, that was the end. You find on some ancient tombstones a little Latin tag which basically means once upon a time I wasn't, once I was, now I'm not, and I don't care. That was quite a common view in those days. But there were others who took a more cheerful view that your body would die and decay, but that your soul would go somewhere really nice and pleasant and live there for a long time. Or others of them believed that your soul would rest a while and then would come back into a different body. You would turn into somebody else, and so on and so on. There are lots of variations on those beliefs. The Jewish people had less variety, but still some. Some of them seemed to have believed that death really was the end. Some of them seemed to have believed that the soul would go off somewhere else. But interestingly, leading up to the period of the time of Jesus, a significant number of Jewish people really did believe that one day, not instantly, but that one day, God would raise from the dead 
all his people, perhaps even the whole human race, but certainly all his people or all his righteous people. And when they used that resurrection idea, they didn't mean a soul going off into the blue yonder, they meant somebody being raised from the dead physically so that they were really themselves again, perhaps even more so. So we have to ask the question, not only why did the early Christians say that that's what happened to Jesus, but interestingly, what did they think would happen to them and to all people sooner or later? This is particularly striking because across many cultures, including contemporary cultures, the things that people believe about life after death, the things they say about that, somebody's funeral for instance, tend to be very conservative. You tend to say pretty much what people said to you when you were young, because it's a time, a very solemn time, for sticking with what you know and where the tradition has left you. But fascinatingly, all the early Christians for whom we have evidence, right across the first 100 and 200 years of Christianity, they all said that what was going to happen was resurrection. In other words, they went for one option and only, only one option out of that whole range of ancient pagan and Jewish worldviews. So it's a question that the historian has to ask. Why did they all change their minds and go for this one? They had other options. Why did they plump for this and only this? Of course, their answer was, the reason we're going this route is that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. So we have to go back and look at the stories they told about what had happened. And when we go back to the books we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that each of them tells the story of the first Easter day in some significantly different ways. And that's fascinating because, you know, if they got together 40 or 50 years later and said, it's time we actually wrote up a story that will convince people, they wouldn't have done it like that. They'd have cobbled it together and made sure that all the details matched exactly. But the stories don't look like that. They look more like what you'd get if there was an extraordinary event, a road accident or a plane crash or something, and everyone in the breathless hours after that happened telling it like they'd seen it, often with bits and pieces of details upside down and inside out. That's a bit how the Gospels read at that point. But there are other odd things about those stories which make me as a historian think that they really have the ring of this is how they told it at the beginning. For instance, very interestingly, the women, Jesus' followers who were women, play a very significant and striking role in all of them. The men are away hiding somewhere. Jesus' male followers thought that the authorities were going to come after them as well. But the women were the first at the tomb, and they were the first to go and tell people. Now, feminists among us may think, well, isn't that great? Fine, and pass on. But it's more interesting than that, because in the first century world, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. In other words, again, if you were making up these stories five weeks or 50 years later, you would never have invented women as your primary witnesses. But there they are, front and center in the stories. Something very strange is going on here. In addition, the portrait of Jesus in those resurrection stories is fascinating because in some of the Jewish speculations about resurrection, they seem to be saying that people will come back exactly as they were before, no change, back into the same body, um, the same sort of physical life, that, and you'll just have it all over again. Whereas others 
among the people who speculate about resurrection, seem to be saying that when we're raised, we'll be like stars in the heaven, we'll be shining like heavenly bodies. Interestingly, in the stories in the Gospels, neither of those is true. Obviously, Jesus is not shining like a star. They would have said that if that had been how it was. He appears to begin with as somebody just like them. And he eats and he drinks with them and he can be touched. But then there are very strange things that happen as well because sometimes he appears and disappears. And sometimes they don't know quite what's going on. Is he really there? They thought he was a ghost. And then it turns out he isn't after all. And again, I have to say, if they'd been making up stories later in order to say, there you are, he's really physical after all, they wouldn't have done it like this. One of the leading scholars of our day, who is not himself actually a practicing Christian, has put it like this. It looks as if they were trying to say something for which they knew they didn't have very good language. In other words, something new is going on here. What was it, this new thing? Well, we can track back historically and say that the only way that they would have told stories like that was if two particular things had happened. On the one hand, there must really have been an empty tomb which they knew was Jesus' tomb. And on the other hand, they must have been meetings with someone, sightings of someone who they took to be Jesus himself. If you didn't have the first, they would have said that those sightings were just hallucinations. They knew as much about hallucinations as we do. If you didn't have the second, they would have said, oh, well, the tomb has been robbed. Tomb robbery was quite common in the ancient world, particularly of well-known people, because robbers would hope that there might be jewels or other valuable goods in the grave with them. It really does look as though the tomb was empty and there were real meetings with Jesus. And you can go through all the options, all the skeptical accounts of, oh, well, it must have been like this or that or the other. But actually, I and many others have done that. And the answer is, no, they don't work. They don't explain the rise of the early Christian faith. The only way to explain it is to say that Jesus hadn't just been resuscitated back into the same life. He had done something quite new. He had gone, as it were, through death and out the other side with a new sort of body, of which there had been no previous example, and of which to this day there remains no subsequent instance. Now the skeptical say, well, that's utterly ridiculous, and the early Christians knew then that it was indeed ridiculous, and many people said that. But actually they discovered that what they said about their experience of meeting Jesus and knowing him to be alive somehow began to change everything. And they discovered that resurrection wasn't just something that happened to Jesus. Resurrection meant that God's new creation had begun. The new world had already started, not with a great bang and suddenly everything being transformed overnight, but with this one prototypical event which was going to generate and drive a whole new world. And you can see that they believe that in the way that they tell the stories. In John's Gospel, in chapter 20, when he is describing that what happened on that very first Easter day, he's, he reminds us that it was the first day of the week. And a little bit later in the chapter, he says it's the first day of the week. And you might think, well, what's so special about that? And the answer is John has written his gospel very carefully in such a way as to remind us of the great sequence in the book of Genesis, the great sequence of creation. And he's now saying this is a new creation. 
this is the first day of the new week. Because the point that he's making, as they all do, is that the story doesn't go like this. Jesus died, Jesus was raised, therefore that's all right, we get to go to heaven. No, resurrection is about a new bodily life in this world and for this world. What they are saying is that the resurrection of Jesus means that God's new creation has begun and therefore we have a job to do. Our calling then in the light of Easter is to be, as it were, advanced foretastes of that new creation. That is to say, we are to be in ourselves both the beneficiaries of it and the agents of it. What exactly does that mean? It means to begin with that the power which was launched at Easter, Easter was like a great explosion of God's new power in the whole world, that power is to transform our lives. That's what happens when somebody discovers that the message of Jesus seems to be bubbling up inside them and making them think and feel and behave differently. But it's never just something for ourselves. Jesus spoke earlier in John's Gospel about the living water which he would give. But he didn't just say, I'll give you the living water for you. He says that you are to be somebody out of whom that living water will flow. And for somebody living in the Middle East then or now, living water is pretty important. If you're in the desert, you need that water. You need fresh water to drink, to be refreshed, to stop from starving and getting totally overheated. Our lives are to be like that. God's intention is to flood the dry and dusty creation with his new life. And we are to be people through whom that happens. And that can be through the gifts that God has given us of maybe creativity, of artistic work, through the passion that God gives us to make justice happen in his world. It can be through the tenderness and kindness that we find bubbling up within ourselves to go and look after people who badly need it. And so often in our world, there are plenty of people very close at hand who come into that category. One way or another, we are to be, as I said, not only the beneficiaries for ourselves of that new creation, we are to be people through whom it happens out there in God's world. Okay. Yes. All right, initial reactions, reflections from, from the video. Anything that uh, NT has brought to your mind there that uh, caught your attention? I noticed he didn't talk about purgatory. No, he didn't talk about purgatory. <laughs> uh, there might be one of the, the upcoming sessions where that will be discussed a little bit. But uh, no, nothing on purgatory. Any other uh, knee-jerk reflections? Okay, well, I want to unpack um, some of what he was, was talking about in here as we think about the resurrection. I think the place to start is with our definitions. It's so important that we have a clear definition of what we're actually even talking about because people will hear these kind of churchy words and they'll insert into it whatever they happen to think that might mean. And resurrection is no different. In fact, it might be one of the, the more primary examples where this sort of thing happens, where people will hear resurrection and subconsciously, in their mind, they'll just insert something like life after death or going to heaven when I die. Okay? Now, biblically speaking, those are two separate things. The idea of, on the one hand, life after death slash you know, going to heaven when I die, and on the other hand, the resurrection. 
They're not competing things, but they are subsequent things. And this is what he's trying to, to lay out for us here. And so a good definition here, number one under discussion on your handout. Resurrection means renewed bodily life after life after death. Okay? It means renewed bodily life after life after death. So just to, I know this is, this is review, overview for, um, for you guys, but what happens when we die is that our body and our soul is essentially rent asunder. It's taken apart. Our soul goes to heaven, goes to be with God in heaven, just like we hear in Revelation, right? It's there among uh, the, the saints, all those who have gone before. It's already, you're, you're already at peace and at rest in the presence of the Savior, while your body is placed in the grave, right? We had a, a burial yesterday for Bill Rauscher, Marguerite Rauschert's son, who passed a few months ago. And I said then, as I say uh, for each and every one of these committals, we're laying Bill in his temporary resting place. Because our Christian belief then is that you're resting for a while. This is the RIP, right? Requisite in pacem, rest in peace. The idea is when Jesus returns, he's going to raise the dead, reunite soul and body and re give you renewed bodily life. That's what we mean by resurrection. Okay? So we kind of jumble up our terms if we, if we just use resurrection as another shorthand to talk about you know, going in, to be with Jesus after I die. Uh, if you want to get real technical, the way that theologians talk about it is <clears throat> what we usually call going to heaven. Um, the technical term for that is the interim state. Okay? The interim state. Or if you will, resurrection's waiting room. Okay? <laughs> and you are at peace. You are at rest. I don't want to, to um, short sell that. But we also need to recognize in the book of Revelation, we see, I think it's in Revelation chapter 6, there's the saints under the altar. And what are they calling out to the Lord? How long? How long, O Lord? Because there is something more yet to come. Our hymn uh, for all the saints captures this powerfully. A lot of our hymns, I don't want to critique our hymns too much, but a lot of our hymns end with the interim state. And, you know, I'm going to die, and my soul is going to go and, and be with Jesus, and that's great. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm considering starting up a, a new enterprise called the Last Stanza Project. Okay? <laughs> and the Last Stanza Project is going to work on developing last stanzas for our hymns, which speak of a robust confession of the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. One that doesn't need to be a, a candidate for the Last Stanza Project is for all the saints. Because for all the saints, it paints this, this picture, all the saints who are in heaven now, and how when we die, we will go to be with them. But then it says... And lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. Get that? A yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. See, that's the yet more glorious day that we are looking forward to and anticipating. That's what we're talking about when we talk about resurrection. Okay? It's that renewed bodily life after life after death. Okay? Yeah, go ahead, Sally. You want to go there right now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Let me, okay, I'll give you a quick response, and then we'll talk about it in more in depth in, in a future one. The quick response is, Jesus can raise you no matter how pulverized you are, okay?
okay? Um, because all, all of our bodies, I mean, you guys know this, I don't mean to get too morbid, but our, our bodies decay, okay? Whether or not you know, you're, you're buried as a body or whether you're cremated, scattered to the four winds, what have you. That being said, um, I think that one way of having your, your body interred gives a better witness to our confession of faith than the other does. Um, because we are not just, as a popular song from the 70s said, dust in the wind, okay? All we are is dust in the wind. It's a good song. Bad theology, okay? Um, we are bodies. God created, and this is what we say at the, in the funeral rite, may God, who created this body, who, who, may God, who by his son's blood redeemed this body, may God, the Holy Spirit, who sanctified this body in baptism, Keep it, these remains, until the day, the resurrection of all flesh. Okay? So that's my short answer, Sally. God's, God's not phased by it, but I think we, we ought to think about, in our, you know, in our funeral planning, how can I give the best witness? Okay? It's, I'll just put a pin on that, and we'll come back to it in a future discussion. Okay, you can go ahead. I think there's DNA in almost every cell, so a body could be reconstructed Sure. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So resurrection, bodily life after life after death. Questions or, or other other questions or reflections about that? Yeah, Anne. When did the hope kind of get off track? Yeah. Uh, when did the hope kind of get off track? And he sort of alluded to this in the video in the last 150 years. He says, and um, again, I think uh, it'll come up a little bit more in our video next week, but. In the last couple of centuries, there seemed to have been less of a post-enlightenment, less of an emphasis and a hope on the resurrection in, insofar as people placed more of their hope into this world and this life. Um, and, you know, we're, we're prospering and things are good. Life is good. Um, so all that really matters is that I know that after I die, I've got a, a place that, you know, my soul will, will go to. Whereas for ancient believers, I mean, first and foremost, because they believed in Jesus' resurrection. But there was this, this robust sense that we want to see God vindicate this, this world and this body that is not sufficient just to say, well, you know, this is nice while it lasts and then we'll, we'll fly off. Um, but in more of the, the histories, you know, undulations and so forth, um, I think we'll get in a little bit more into that. But suffice it to say, Post-enlightenment, there was just less of an emphasis on the body and more just on the spirit and soul and the mind. Yeah. Other questions or reflections so far? All right. Yeah, go ahead, Hans. Okay, it says, you know, you'll be raised in a new body. And I'm going, and it's like, you'll be your own self, whatever. Right. But it's like, I go, well, gee, am I going to be my 20-year-old self? Ah. My... Yeah, good question. Hans's question is, okay, so I'm going to be raised in a renewed version of my body. Am I going to be my 20-year-old self? I don't know. What, Hans, you are your best self now, I think. Um, <laughs> all right, so I'll trot out my theory right now already. I, I may have shared this before. My theory is it's very simple because, uh, and philosophers, theologians have, have questioned this exact question. How old would you be? Is it when you're, when you're a kid? Plato said that um, our, we are at our, our Aristotle said that we're at our, our prime of life between 30 and 45, okay? Where you are old enough to have a little bit of wisdom 
and still young enough to have a little bit of strength. Okay, so that's kind of the the, the key. Now, it's boo. Although I also heard recently that 48 is like where you hit your low point for happiness. <laughs> Sorry, I'm putting chip. <laughs> Not because you're 48, but because we both listen to that podcast. I think where they talk about that. <laughs> Uh, and so you get happier as you get into your 50s and your 60s. Anyway, um, where was I going with this? Oh, <laughs> Jesus is 33 when he rises from the dead. So that's my best guess at how old we'll, we'll be in the resurrection. It's something approximating 33 years of age. Understanding that time doesn't exist in the way that it does in this age, right? But something approximating that. That's my... But if you died before you were 33? Yeah. Then they, you know those kind of creepy pictures they do right. where they fast forward you? But, so everyone's the same age? That seems weird. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't matter. But there's no age. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, Chip. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's, a good, it's a good question, and I don't have an answer to it. I'm not there yet. Yeah, Bill. It, 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 that, that issue, uh, or the, your re- your response to that issue and trying to answer that issue yeah. is a reflection of man trying to put himself right. into the position of deciding for God. Yeah. You know, which is it just you just can't. There's a certain point at which yeah. in contemplating these things you just have to say, you know, I really don't know. Exactly right. You just have to leave it to him and you know, it maybe I'll come up back, you know, I'll, I'll be my soul will go into my dog. I, I, no, I can say that that's wrong. But I, I, there's things that we can say that we don't want to no, don't want I, to say. But you're right that there's a lot that we that we, we can't say. It's a real danger to start imposing a rational scientific thinking onto God right. and saying, "Well, I I can figure it out as well as He right. can." Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. No, there is a glorious surprise that awaits us. Right. And it's not the sort of thing you're going to arrive at the resurrection and be like, that's what I thought. Uh, you know, I knew it. I knew it. Yeah, nailed it. Um, but we, we can, we see as in a glass darkly, right? But then face to face. That's the promise that we get. All right, I've got other things I want to cover here. So let's, let's go on here. Um, and, but it, uh, to this point, you think about Jesus and his resurrection. So take a look at John 20. This is, this is a, just a great exa- greatest example of this. Yeah, this was our, our gospel um, just last Sunday. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, as Bishop Wright mentioned, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Okay, so just a couple of verses there. We see how the resurrected Jesus is both familiar and strikingly different from before his death. So what's something about him that's familiar? He's got the, he has the, the scars from when he was crucified. Yeah. What else is familiar? His voice. His voice. They recognize his voice. They recognize his body. 
They, they recognize right. his body. Yeah. Although also in the subsequent chapter, in chapter 21, the gospel that we heard today, isn't it interesting that they're like debating, like that's Jesus, right? That's totally Jesus. Like there's this, there's this hesitancy, this uncertainty, which suggests something of the, the strikingly different side about him too. What else is different that you notice here? He passes through walls. He passes through walls. Yeah. The resurrected, not because he's a ghost. He's physical enough that he's like, put your hand in my, in my hands and in my side. But now Jesus is operating in the resurrected reality. He has access to the, some of the dimensions that you and I don't have access to right now. Cool. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, he, so this, is, this just kind of hints at and teases at what, what Bill's getting at, too, of in the resurrection... There is both a familiarity, but a decided discontinuity and surprise about it. And we don't want to lose either, either side of that, right? Um, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, I go, go back to him all the time, but he, he really gets this with, uh, and the movie does a good job with this, with Gandalf. Um, because Gandalf goes through this death and resurrection, and he's, he's Gandalf the Grey, but then he comes back, he's Gandalf the White. And at first, they like, they see him, and they don't quite recognize him, but eventually they realize that it's him. And I think that he's, he's playing with the same kind of dynamic in that story with that character is what we see with Jesus, both strikingly familiar and strikingly different. Okay. All right, I want to I do a, a little exercise here. I was uh, inspired by what Bishop Wright was talking about here. Let's go to Mark 16. Mark chapter 16. And... The account of Jesus' resurrection here in Mark. Some people think that this is the, the first and oldest of, of the Gospels. I personally don't think so. I think that uh, Mark follows after Matthew. That's the traditional view. But among many modern scholars, they think that Mark is the oldest. But it's neither here nor there. Um, I want to read Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. And I want you to think about if you... if um, how did I put it? If Jesus hadn't actually risen from the dead and you were trying to invent a plausible account, how would you revise Mark's narrative? Okay? All right, because here's how Mark has it. And we'll, we'll pick it apart here in a second. All right, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, hmm, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. All right. <laughs> there ends the, the reading. So if you were trying to invent a plausible account, what would you do different than what Mark actually includes here? Yeah, are you raising your hand, Sam? No. Oh, you're stretching. Okay. Yeah, Ian? Well, I think, first of all, they would actually see him. Okay, yep. Angels. Yep. So you, you'd get a, a clear view right off the bat. Yeah. 
oh, and uh, let's see, Jesus should be there, right there. And they come in and he's like, ta-da! Yeah, yeah, exactly. That'd be good. Good. Yeah, what else? We're trying to make this more plausible than Mark's able to do. Well, I don't make my stories line up. It's like he says, yeah, that's right. Go, go to uh, Galilee. Yeah. Well, where are the disciples? They're hanging out in Jerusalem. Right. And well, and uh, where was there one angel or was there two? Two angels. You know, and was it an angel or a young man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to make sure we're we're all on the same page with that. Yeah, man. I don't know if there's any significance to this, but ever since we saw the Passion of the Christ again. Yeah. Mark, it mentions that um, they brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. But in John, it mentions that um, Joseph of Arimathea is also bringing uh, spices, mm -hmm. presumably for the same purpose. He right. brings like 75 pounds of weight. So right, right. what happened? Did he get anointed the night before and the, the stone was rolled in and then the... Right. The ladies came to do it not knowing it had been done? Was yeah. there a disconnect in communication? There? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Very possibly, right? Um, they don't necessarily hang out with Joseph. Joseph was of a, of a different class. Maybe he had done this. They didn't realize it. So, yeah, uh, it's good. So this is another thing we need to fix. We need to make very, very clear about this. Yes? yes. Well, probably the best thing you could have done was have Caiaphas and Ananias come to the tomb and, and meet the resurrected Jesus. I mean, they're there you incredible go. witnesses. Exactly, that's right. Just go ahead and put them in there. Pontius Pilate comes in, and he gets beat down by Jesus. It's awesome. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He's Jesus. Uh, well, okay, yeah, good. Nobody's mentioned what I think maybe... Well, well, they wouldn't be alarmed. You wouldn't make them alarmed. Yeah, you know, what a weird thing. Yeah, you would make them more joyful. More joyful and, and confident right off the bat. Uh, Mark is, he's, like, wait a second, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid? How weird is that? Yeah. That doesn't seem right. Yeah. And the stone, you know, the stone was rolled away. Yeah. And they're talking about it. Well, who's going to roll the stone? They right. should have thought about that before. They should have thought about that before. Exactly. <laughs> wait a second, how are we going to move the stone away? <laughs> how does that happen? About the, the, the fact of who it is that's, that are the witnesses, right? Like he said, if you're inventing this, you're not going to have a, a group of women that go to the temple or go to the, the tomb. You're going to have some guys, right? Some, you know, credible, reliable guys. How about soldiers? Maybe even soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, this one always cracks me up, you're not going to have like 18 people named Mary, right? <laughs> If you're making it up, you're not going to say, all right, so we got Mary, and who else? Another Mary. What? What's Mary? Mary, uh, somebody's mom or something. You know, like, all of these things just bear the mark of something. If you are making it up, you could have done such a better job. That's my point. It bears the mark of truthfulness and facticity. And the fact that there are these, these subtle differences among the gospel writers, that isn't something that should that should disturb us or alarm us, but is in a, uh, a kind of um, counterintuitive way, a further recognition and validation of the truthfulness of it. Because they saw something, something actually happened. Was there two or was there one? Dude, I don't know, I was freaking out. I think there was two, maybe there was just one, I don't remember. It was an angel, right? It was for sure an angel. It was at least a young man, I don't know. Like, something happened that changed everything. Well, he alluded to that in the video when he said something about that. Like, you know, if you have 
Say you're in a car accident. Yes. Yep. And you have five witnesses. Right. You're going to have five different stories. Sure. But but you're not going to come away right, saying it that going, there wasn't a car accident. They're still going to agree that there was a car accident. Right. Exactly. But how it happened and whatever. Some of those details. Those, those little details. And that's what these are. The right. smaller details. The smaller details. <laughs> yeah. So how does this work with the rest of the Bible where we don't apply this lens to it? What do you mean? I mean, we talk about about being inerrant and being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we're saying this is the same thing. Right. But now we're talking about it like it's a newspaper reporting, and different people are reporting different different things. Do, do we apply that same logic to other parts of the Gospels? Well, did he, did, 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 did he really feed 5,000 people? You know, there were 50 right. people there. I mean, we don't question the miracles in that same sense. Right. That, well, maybe maybe these people got it wrong. I mean, there's this gospel doesn't even mention it. Maybe it didn't happen. Right. I know. I'm just wondering. Like, like I agree with you when it comes to this, but like, how can we can use it for this? We can't use that same that same model, or do we? For yeah. Words? No. I mean, I I think that we do, or we should yeah. that have have this sense of inerrancy. I think it's a, a false view of inerrancy to think, okay, so inerrancy has to mean that everything lines up perfectly, right? Um, as though it were a math problem. That's not the way that history works. It's not the, our understanding of it. What's inerrant is the, the revelation, the recording of the events that have happened. So it's not false or misleading to say that there's complementary uh, accounts, that what one, one says something that another one doesn't say, or like you said, and some of them, it doesn't include it at all. Now, people will say, oh, these are contradictions, and therefore that um, invalidates the, the scripture. And I think the better word is complementarity rather than contra contradictory. But I mean, we don't want to view it, like you say, merely as like newspaper reporting. I think that's an analogy to help us kind of understand it. Um, but that there's there's definitely more going on here. Becky, did you have your hand up? Well, I just I think that leaving out some details doesn't mean that they didn't exist. If I say, oh, I saw Betty at the movie theater Monday night, and Anne says, I saw Fred at the movie theater last night, no one is going to say, well, those two girls are lying, because Becky said only Betty was there, yeah. and Anne said only Fred was there. There might have been 80 people there. Right. Not just and Betty I and feel Fred. like that's how some of them <laughs> <laughs> it's both. It's both in. It's just two, two points of view sometimes. They're not right. necessarily contradictory if they're not all inclusive. It's, it's right. But this is an important point, because... Um, this is kind of like one of the, the first things that, that skeptics of, of the faith will point to. I remember um, at Michigan State, I signed up for, I think it was called like Hebrew Bible 101 or something like that. Oh, this is cool. We'll take a Bible class. And in the very first class, the guy tried to rub our nose in the fact that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 look different. Genesis 1 gives us kind of God's eye view, if you will, of the creation account. On the first day, God created, let there be light, uh, and it was good, etc., etc. It goes through all the six days of creation. Then in Genesis 2, starting, I think, verse 4 or verse 5, suddenly we get this very down-to-earth perspective of you know, God creating Adam and Eve. And he set those side by side. And he's like, look it, don't you see how they're, how they're contradictory? And, the, and there's all these, these convoluted theories about you know, different authors and blah, 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 blah. We don't need to get into all of that. But suffice it to say, I looked at it then, and I look at it now, and I said, this is not contradictory, this is complementary. And God wants to give us a superabundance of, of material and ways of, of looking at things and understanding what he has to teach us and to show us. So, all right, a couple closing points. Um, and I really, one of the things I really appreciate about this book and N.T. Wright's approach is 
even as a historian, he's, he's very unique in this respect where he's not just an ivory tower kind of guy and he doesn't just talk about the history, but he connects it to the life of the church. That we now have this calling, as he said, not only to be beneficiaries of the new creation, but also agents of it. And there's a couple ways in which to think about that. First of all, number four on your handout, when we are baptized, we are reborn into the new creation already underway. I can demonstrate this from a, a, a cool uh, juxtaposition of um, two verses. First of all, in Matthew 19, Jesus says to the disciples, Truly I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It goes along with the, the Revelation reading today. The key phrase there is, in the regeneration. And the Greek word that's translated regeneration there is the word palingenesia. Palingenesia. It means literally again birth, rebirth. Palin is again, genesia, like Genesis, is origin or birth. Okay? So he says in the regeneration, what's he referring to? He's referring to the resurrection. He's referring to the new creation in the palingenesia, in that rebirth of all creation. Some translations say in the new world. Okay. Now, I mention this because that same word palingenesia is used one other place in the New Testament in Titus 3 verse 5, which says God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the washing of palingenesia, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, referring to baptism. So to put these two together, what happens to you when you are baptized is a foretaste, an anticipation of what's going to happen for the whole physical creation when Jesus returns. So that when you're baptized, it's like you are already being ushered into, through the power of the Holy Spirit, this renewing, regenerating work that is now rippling out into all the world. That's why, as N.T. Wright says, you are both beneficiaries and agents of that new creation. One last thought on that same line then. Number five, Christians are sources of living water for a dry and dusty world. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You are beneficiaries of that living water of the Holy Spirit. You are renewed, but out of your heart flows. You are also a conduit of that living water to your neighbors. In a, a drab and dreary, dry and dusty world, you then are agents of that living water. And so, getting very practical, Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So that as agents of new creation, as conduits of living water, we bring so even a little cup of cool water to our neighbors. So as we go uh, from this place this morning, think about who do you know that could use a cup of cool water this week? that is parched from this dry and dreary world and could stand to receive a little bit of that living water of our Lord's grace. Think about that as we go from this place. And next week, we'll continue our conversation, the hope that we have through our resurrected Lord. God be with you. Thanks for being here.